Good morning, church. How is everyone? I'm glad that you've chosen to spend some time with us this morning. My name is Cody King. I'm one of the Connections pastors here. And just again, I want to say welcome. I want to welcome those that are joining us in Edgewood, those that may be watching online. We're very glad that you all are here this morning. Um, We're in week seven of our series called Upside Down. And as Jose said earlier, we're walking through the Beatitudes um, in the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is a sermon that Jesus gave, and it's the most famous sermon probably that was ever given, and it's in uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 of your Bible. And these blessings that we're walking through, these beatitudes, are just character traits that Christians should have. And when Jesus presents these, he presents these to, to a people you know, that think completely different than what he is about to lay out. That's why it's upside down. He's changing, he's turning upside down the way people think and the way that they should act. You know, he begins with blessed are the poor in spirit and that's the idea of being beggarly. And then he says, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And if you've missed any of those, I encourage you to go online and watch, um, watch those messages on those, on those particular Beatitudes. But the first four deal with how we relate to God, and the preceding four, the next four, deal with how we can relate to each other. Right, so then after, um, after those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, it's blessed are those, or blessed are the merciful. Merciful. Last week, Brian taught us very well about David and, and exemplifying blessed are the pure in heart. And continuing this morning, we're going to go to, to verse 9 in Matthew 5. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God. So blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And note here at the beginning that he says that they shall be called sons of God. It's not that blessed are the peacemakers, for they are sons of God, or they shall become sons of God, but they are called sons of God. Sons of God are known as sons of God because of something that they do and something that they portray, and that is, in this case, peacemaking. So before we talk about peacemaking, I want to address what, what it means to be a son of God. What does it look like to be a son of God? A son of God are, are, is those who revere God as their father. It's the pious worshipers of God. It's those who in character and life resemble God. Much like you know, today you know, you know, on earth, you know, as sons reflecting their fathers. You know, have you ever heard the term, you, know, you are your father's son? How many moms in here have said that to their child at some point? You know, you are your father's son. Uh, it sounds like, why are you saying that? But it's because the son is reflecting the character of the father. You know, throughout my life, people have looked at me and said, man, you look so much like your dad. You know, or you act just like your dad. Uh, at one point in time, I didn't know really how to take that. <laughs> but, but, I, but they would say, man, you sound, you sound just like your dad. When I talk to you on the phone, I think it's your dad. It's because I am my father's son. People know my father, and then they see me, and they recognize me as having the characteristics of my father. You know, I am my father's son. It's the same idea when we talk about sons of God. Sons of God reflect the character of God. So what are some of the characteristics of God in relation to peace if we're talking about peacemaking? Romans 15.33 says, May the God of peace be with you all. Right there, God is, a, he is a God of peace. 1 Corinthians 14, 13. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. 
1 Thessalonians 5.23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. In Psalm 85.8, Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, the saints. Now here I'm going to give a lot of scripture as we go through here. So if you're trying to write them down, write them down quickly because I'm about to go through them pretty quickly. Just like the first four. But all these are characteristics of God in relation to peace, that he is a God of peace. And he's such a God of peace is that when, when in Genesis 3, when the fall happened and Adam and Eve sinned, and sin enters the world and everything becomes broken, now there needs to be a, a fixing of what was broken. All of a sudden, because of the sin that entered the world, Adam and Eve became enemies of God. Us today, apart from Christ, if we're living in our sin, we are enemies of God. So peace has to be making. Peace has to be made. And since God is a God of peace, what does He do? He sends His Son, Jesus, the supreme peacemaker, to make peace with His creation. Now, Jesus would come as the Prince of Peace in Isaiah nine six. And in verse seven, He says, "Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end." The angels announced His birth, singing in Luke two fourteen, "Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to whom He favors." In about a month's time, we're going to sing that a lot. But on earth, peace to whom he favors. Jesus came to reconcile us to God, Ephesians 2, 14 through 18. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, which we'll talk more here in a minute, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And we're going to see an example of this later. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the Christ, therefore, kill, therefore killing the hostility. And he, became, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Colossians 1, 19 through 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. If God is a God of peace, that fullness of God is in him and pleased to dwell. God, Jesus is the peacemaker and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Used often was Jesus' word of absolution. Go in peace is what he would say to the faithful. In Luke seven fifty, and he said to the woman, your faith has saved you go in peace. And again, in Luke 8, 48, he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace. And it's huge to realize here that, that they didn't go in peace because they were made well. They went in peace because they were reconciled to God. Their faith has made you well. Therefore, they went in peace because they were reconciled before God. Hours before his arrest and crucifixion, Jesus says to the disciples, and this is my favorite scripture in the entirety of the Bible, he says in John 14, 27, peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, nor let them be afraid. This is hours before he is arrested, wrongfully tried, and ultimately goes to the cross to give his life to make the peace that he came to make between God and man. And he says, my peace I give to you. Then after his resurrection, appearing before the disciples, his first words to them were, peace to you, in Luke 24. And then it is through Jesus that we are made to be able to become sons of God. Galatians 3.26, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. And as sons, we share in his ministry of reconciliation. 
right? If we're sons of God, by way of Jesus Christ, we're going to be conformed into his image, and his image bears peace, and he's reconciling us to God. Therefore, we share in that ministry of reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20, Paul says this, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And he says that he was not counting, he not was not counting their trespasses against them. So if we are peacemakers, and we are to be seeking peace, if we are made in the image of Christ, and we are sons of God, we are peacemakers, whenever we encounter people and we're seeking to make peace, what do we not do? We don't count people's sins against them, because ultimately we're a sinner all the same. But then Paul says there at the end of 20, he says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. If you're here this morning and you have not put your faith and trust in Jesus, if you would say you're not a Christian, you're right now not a believer, I implore you, we implore you, be reconciled to God. There's not a more important decision you will ever make in your life than to put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord. And it's very important to understand this fact when we talk about salvation, that when you, many people want Jesus as their Savior, but they don't want him as Lord of their life. But you cannot have those two things apart. If you try and have those two things apart, you are divided. You're not going to be a son of God or a daughter of God. But if you want to talk about salvation, if you want to further have a further conversation on that, please put it on a communication card and somebody this week will reach out to you and we'll begin talking about that because it's that important. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And it is through through his spirit that we are able to reflect this character of God. On our own, left to our own, we cannot. But if we put our faith and our trust in Jesus and by him we're made sons of God, he knows we can't do it on our own, so he sends the helper in the spirit and it's by the spirit that we're able to reflect this character. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God, Romans 8, 14. And the spirit gives us the fruit of peace. Galatians 5, love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, generous self-control, but it's peace and it comes from the spirit leading us making us sons of God because we're led by him. So blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Sons of God are known as such because they make peace. They seek to make peace. Now contrastingly on this, troublemakers are not sons of God. And there are a lot of troublemakers. Sadly, there's a lot of troublemakers in the church. There are a lot of those in the church that would claim to be a son of God, but when they come in, they're always argumentative, They're always seeking to nitpick everything. They're overly critical. And dissension and division is always in their wake. They're not seeking peace, but they would claim to be a son of God. And that's contrary to the gospel, and it's a detriment to the gospel. But troublemakers are not sons of God. So if I described you in here, I'm not trying to get you to question your salvation necessarily, but more so to check your heart. If you're always argumentative, if you're always critical, if you're always seeking to divide, if you find joy in division, joy in gossip, you may or may not, you may not be a son of God. You may be a child of God, but hear me on this, there's a difference likely in child of God and son of God. 
A child of God is in the family, but a son of God, as we have said here, is someone that you recognize as such. You recognize a son of God because they reflect the character of their father. But we need to stop claiming to be sons of God and not seeking peace and just making trouble within our relationships. So blessed are the peacemakers. So now peacemakers, what, is it, what does it look like to be a peacemaker? It's a compound word, so we'll separate the two right now. What is the peace it is that we're supposed to be making? In the Hebrew, peace is shalom, right? It's used as a, a greeting and as a farewell. It's like saying hello or goodbye. It's a broad term related to health, prosperity, harmony, and wholeness. It means perfect welfare, serenity, fulfillment, freedom from trouble. And I love this right here. It's liberation from anything, liberation from anything which hinders contentment. We're saying it's, 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 it's being free from anything that we would seek to grab and hold on to in this world to fulfill us in any way. Peace is freedom from that. I don't have to have anything. Not saying it's bad to have. Don't misunderstand. But the seeking to have, to fulfill some void, to fulfill something within you is not living at peace. You're constantly seeking and trying to grab something. But peace is freedom from that. It's living right where you're at and being content with it. Rick, Rick Ezel says this. He says, when a Jew said shalom, they were wishing on another the full presence, peace, and prosperity of all the blessedness of God. He says that the famous Aaronic benediction of Numbers 6, 24, 26 brings out this idea very clearly. And in Numbers 6, 24, he says, the Lord bless you and protect you the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord look with favor on you and give you peace. You have made, have heard that several times as a greeting or a farewell from someone. Chances are you've heard it from Brandon Bachtel very often because he says it very often. But he will give you peace and the peace that he gives encompasses everything that precedes it. The Lord bless you, protect you, make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you and look on you with favor and give you peace. In the Greek, peace is irene, means harmony between individuals, right? It's security, safety, prosperity of Christians. It's the tranquil state of a soul that's assured of its salvation through Christ. And so fearing nothing from God and content with whatever happens in this, this earth, whatever it may be, content with it. So that's peace, so now maker. Maker is very simple. I think we could all understand maker without a lot of definition, but in the Greek, it's poieo, and it means simply to make or to do. It's an action word. It's, 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 it's taking action. It's taking initiative, right? A toy maker cannot make toys just sitting idle. Or anyone that makes anything, in order to make the thing that you make, you have to take action. You have to move to put things together to build or make that what you're making. That's not hard to understand but making anything requires action. So what are peacemakers not? Before we get into more of what a peacemaker is, what are peacemakers not? I think this will help us here as we start to, to head in the direction we want to go here, but what are peacemakers not? It's not pacifism. Right? It's not the absence of conflict or strife. We need, to, we need to understand that, that just because, just because we, don't have abs- we don't have conflict or strife doesn't mean that there's, there's peace necessarily. Right? Peacemakers, you know, peacemaking, it's not peace achieving, it's not peace faking, it's not peace maintaining. Right? 
It's greeting a brother or sister and looking them in the eye with genuine love in your heart, seeking to rectify whatever wrong in the relationship or hurt, excuse me, that there may be. That is peacemaking. It's taking action. Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. This is the peacemaker's mission statement. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So far as it depends on you. Who can we control in this, in this, in this life? The one person that we can control, that's ourselves. Right? We think we can control our kids. Right? We think we can control our pets. Right? But ultimately, the only person that we can really control in this life is ourselves. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. It, it's beautiful how Paul says that because he takes out any doubt. He takes everything out of that scenario and puts it all on the individual. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Psalm 34, 14 says, seek peace and pursue it. And Paul says, if possible. I love it that he says that. He, he, he does kind of, in a way, give a little comfort to that whenever we think of how we're gonna really live peaceably with everybody. But he says, if possible. So have you ever been in a situation where you've tried to seek peace with someone and it didn't, you didn't end up with peace, right? It didn't, you know, a further division might've happened. You know, husbands, has that happened with your wife before? Right? But he says, if possible, right? Your attempt at peace, it may not succeed every time. But John Piper says, don't let the rupture in the relationship be your fault. Seek peace and pursue it. And you would ask, so what if you, what if you do, Cody, what, what if I do seek after peace and it doesn't work? And it just, it, just, it just stirs the pot and everything seems to get worse. Wouldn't it have been better if I never sought peace at all, if I never said anything? And the answer is no. Paul would say no. Jesus would say no. Scripture would say no. It's not better because eventually it's going to get worse and that beneath the surface is going to fester and one day it's going to blow up. But when you see that person or that group of people and that resentment that's inside of you, that resentment is going to grow. It's going to boil. You're going to become angry, right? And then when, whenever that resentment grows and you're angry, every time you see an individual or you see a person that has wronged you, are you at peace? Certainly not. No. We, we, sometimes we, we allow the sin of others and, and, the, and the conflict that we see to affect us, to rob us of our peace, but we don't say anything because we think we are maintaining some kind of peace by not saying anything and avoiding conflict. But that would be passivism, and that will be worse in the end. So this is where we're going to kind of hone in for the rest of our time together this morning. It's going to be on this topic of passivity. Because I believe in the, in the church today, and, and I'm, I don't have years and years of experience, but I've been here long enough to see it, and I've grown up in the church enough to see it, that there are far too many people in today's church that are far too passive, that don't speak up, that don't say and don't speak truth because they're afraid of the conflict that might happen. So they don't seek, they just remain passive. Paul writes to the church in Corinth on this topic. He says in 1 Corinthians 11, 18 through 19, he says, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. If there was no, fa if there was no division in the church in Corinth, Paul wouldn't have been writing that. He wouldn't have heard that. But because he heard it, it gave him 
it gave him confidence that there's true believers in Corinth. There are people in Corinth that will stand up for the truth and speak the truth because if they had not, there wouldn't be this division is what he says. But peacemakers don't forego truth at the expense of peace. If genuine Christians, those that would call themselves sons of God, would have compromised the truth and to keep a division from happening, there would have been no vision, division but a shallow church full of a bunch of people that would do what is right in their own eyes. And if you know your Bible, if you've read the Old Testament, every time a people did what was right in their own eyes, peace certainly did not follow. But instead, God's judgment was brought. But where there's truth, there's a dividing line. Always, where there's truth, there's a dividing line. I'm about to read a scripture here, a statement that Jesus makes, and, and some of you are probably going to turn your head to the side with that little puppy dog look and go, huh? And I'll explain when we get through that. But Jesus says in Matthew 10, 34 through 36, he says, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. So how is that? From everything that we've said about God, about Jesus, his son, the supreme peacemaker, the prince of peace, how is it that the prince of peace just said, I did not come to bring peace to the earth, but I, come to bring, I came bringing a sword. What could he mean there? But where there is truth, there is a dividing line always. And Jesus, the embodiment of truth, though he came as the prince of peace to reconcile a broken world to a holy father, in effect, doing that, he's going to divide people, the wheat from the shaft. As he does that, and people begin to put their faith and their trust in Jesus, and they become reconciled to God, and they're, made, they're put at peace between them and God, there are going to be those that don't. There's always going to be someone on the other side of that line. Jesus puts a line in the sand, and those that would believe in me, trust in me, put their faith in me, they cross the line, and they're sons of God, they're children of God but there are those that are still unbelieving, still not children of God, and as such, they're still enemies of God. And yes, that can be within the same household. Paul addresses this, 1 Corinthians 7, with an unbelieving spouse. It's unequally, unequally yoked. There's a separation that is naturally there between truth and sin. An example of this that is all too relevant for the church today is in Galatians 2, 11, and this is where we're going we're gonna to zero in on this topic of passivity and what can possibly happen with it within a church. So in Galatians 2, we're going to read through it, and then I'll give you some context, and then, and then we'll, we'll, we'll walk back through it. So in, starting in verse 11, but when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. And this is Paul talking. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so even that Barnabas, Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, or Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So here's what's happening. This is at the church in Antioch. This is Paul's home church, okay? 
The church in Antioch, this is the place where, where the first place disciples were called Christians. That's why it's huge. What's about to happen here is huge. This is the birthplace of the term Christians. We are called Christians today because of what people started calling the disciples here at Antioch. At this point in time, before the church in Jerusalem, before the persecution, you know, the church in Jerusalem was in Jerusalem. But then when persecution started happening, the church scattered, you know, and started going out through, you know, people started going out throughout, throughout the region. Missionaries went out sharing the gospel, right? And different churches were being beginning to be planted. Antioch would be one of those, right? And while this is happening, Peter goes out, right? And in Acts 10, you know, we get Peter, he goes to Caesarea. And he gets this vision of the sheet, you know, coming down from heaven. And on the sheet were clean and unclean animals. Now, what's meant by that is under Jewish law, there were, were dietary restrictions, right? They couldn't eat something that was unclean, right? Gentiles were unclean. Right? There was the Jew and everybody else, the Gentiles. Gentiles were unclean. So for a Jewish man or a Jewish woman to keep the law, they couldn't eat what was unclean, and they couldn't, because of that law, go into the home of a Gentile. We covered that a few weeks ago. So Peter couldn't go into the home of a Gentile, much less eat with the Gentile because of the uncleanness. But he sees this sheet coming down, and it's signifying that God is telling him that, that, that what I've made clean don't call unclean. There's no distinction between Jew, Gentile, Greek, slave, anything. There's no distinction made. The gospel is for everyone. That is what Peter understood from this vision. So Peter goes to Cornelius' house, a Gentile, eats with them, shares the gospel, and then him and his entire household become saved. That's what happened there as far as the first Gentile. You know, Peter's the first one to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So then Peter goes back in Acts 11 to the church in Jerusalem, shares what happened, and then the circumcision party, right? This is the... I don't know, Church of Christ, right? You know, or the Baptists or the Methodists. This is just someone else there at the church criticizes Peter for doing this, but yet he, he stands and he tells them, gives them a report of everything that happened. Right? So now the circumcision party, this is a group of people that believe, that are Jewish Christians that believe that for a Gentile to become a Christian, you know, to come to salvation, they can't just put their faith in Jesus. They have to keep the law. They have to keep the dietary restrictions and they have to be circumcised. That's the circumcision part and that's what they believe. They believe it's Christ plus something. They have to do this. And there's just, in the church at this point in time as they're working through these things, this is what begins to play out in Antioch. Okay, y'all with me? So going back to verse 11, so when Peter came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. The, The lesser of that word means that he was just in the wrong. So before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. So the certain men is the circumcision party, those that believe that, that, that you have to be circumcised, keep dietary restrictions, keep the law and all that stuff there. But Paul says before these men came, he, Peter, was sitting with the Gentiles. Okay, so Peter was known at this point in time to, I mean, he understood the, the gospel, the truth of it, that it was for anybody. So Peter would eat with the Gentiles. He had no problem sitting and communing in fellowship with the Gentiles. No problem whatsoever is what Paul is saying here. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So what happens here, I think you can probably relate. James addresses this, you know, the sin of partiality in a way. But it's so much deeper than that right here for Peter. Because whenever these came, the circumcision party came from Jerusalem, likely unannounced, 
It didn't say that James sent them. They just came from James. James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, so they just came. And when he saw them and they came there, he drew back and separated himself. And in the Greek, the word for drew back means that, that, that it's like he, he sneakily, you know, lowered himself and just kind of snuck away from it and separated himself from them. And the word separated there carries the idea of he excluded them. Excluding someone as disreputable. It's as if he was invalidating them as even being part of this fellowship at all. And he did it in a sneaky way. It's not like he said, hey guys, I'm going to go say hi to him real quick and I'll be back. Nothing, nothing like that. It was just he snuck away and separated himself as if to say that this circumcision party was right. This is the way you Gentiles need to believe because I can't sit with you anymore because you're not clean, because you're not doing these things. That's kind of the idea with Peter drawing drawing back and separating himself, fearing what these people would think. And how often do we see that? Someone doing something foolish on account of fear of what someone else would think. Everyone can relate. And if it's not bad enough that Peter, if Peter were to do this by himself, but this is Peter, David Gusick would say, says that, that Peter at this point in time was probably the most prominent Christian in the world at this point in time. Right? Peter was the spokesperson of the apostles. Right? This is Peter. Peter. Drawing back and separating himself, right? And then what makes it worse is that people see this in verse 13. And the rest of the Jews, this is the Jewish Christians at the Antioch, they acted hypocritically along with him. And hypocritically, the word there, it's, 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 they're play acting. It's like a stage actor putting on a mask. But it carries the idea of putting on a mask, knowing that the mask that you're putting on is not real. You're about to be acting out something that you know to be fake. That's the idea of, of, of hypocritically here. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so, even, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. And now Barnabas... Luke tells us in Acts eleven twenty four that Barnabas, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Right? He's the one that brought Paul to Antioch. He's the one that vouched for Paul at Jerusalem because before Paul was Paul, Paul was Saul who persecuted the church. But whenever he was converted, he came to Jerusalem. And imagine how the church responded when they see this man that used to persecute them. But Barnabas is the one that vouched for him. He's the real deal. Likely Paul's best friend at this point in time. So how is it, how is it that a man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and Peter no less, how is it that they act this way? And this is very important, very important for us today. They act that way because they're still sinners. They may be saved by grace, but nonetheless, they're still sinners. We are still prone to act like we used to act. Peter's still prone to be the same Peter that would deny Jesus three times. He's still prone to be the same Peter that would draw a sword and cut somebody's head off. The same Peter that would go headlong into a situation full of pride. I'm the same Cody that's prone to do something very stupid or say something very stupid. But when I do, thankfully, I'm surrounded by a church and around a people in a community in a journey group that would see that and correct me in that. We're about to see what Paul does here. But thankfully, there was someone here because at this point in time, you have Peter, you have the circumcision party, you have the Jews that are there, you have Barnabas, 
all separating themselves from the Gentiles. And here at the precipice, in the birth of the church, you're about to have a church split. Imagine how the church might be today, at this point right here, if the church in Antioch were to split on account of the failure of a leader and then the failure of someone else to take action whenever they saw it. That's the danger of being passive and not seeking peace. But Paul sees it. He notices it and sees it for what it is. But then in verse 14, Paul says, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. And here it is. Paul doesn't just see someone liking, I like them better than I like them. That's not what Paul sees here. Paul sees that this is not in step with the truth of the gospel. And the truth of the gospel is that the gospel is for everyone. Jew and Gentile alike. There's no exclusion and there's no Christ plus something. There's no, I put my faith in Christ, but no, you have to be circumcised. You got to keep the law and the law of Moses. I've been doing it my entire life. You have to do it if you want to believe in Jesus. Paul sees that and he says, no, that is not the gospel. The truth of the gospel is that it is for everybody. You don't have to do anything. And we are together as a church, but he sees the separation. He sees the danger that's happening. And being the peacemaker that Paul is, he takes action. Now, who is Paul at this point in time? And again, this is huge. At this point in time, Paul hasn't gone on all these missionary journeys. He's not rose to be the prominent apostle that we know Paul to be. He hasn't written all the letters and just all the wisdom. At this point in time, the world doesn't know Paul the way we know Paul. Paul's a baby Christian. And he stands up to Peter nonetheless. He sees what's happening. And he takes action and initiative and he steps forward and he looks there and he says, I said to Cephas before them all, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And what he's saying is, Peter, man, I've seen you. You've been here. You have included them. You've sat with them. You've been in fellowship with them. You have no problem acting like a Gentile because you realize that there's no distinction. But how can you do that? How can you do that now because of fear of someone else? How is it, Peter, that you can now start to begin to try and impose on them what you know to be incorrect? And what follows in Galatians, Paul doesn't say how that turned out. But we can imagine from just the character of Peter and what we know of Peter, and as Acts plays out after this, Peter stands up at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, and he boldly says on behalf of the Gentiles that, no, we we can't do this. God gave me this revelation. The Gentiles, we can't impose the law on them. It is faith alone and Christ alone. And he boldly proclaims that. Barnabas ends up standing up on that behalf as well. So you see the correction. I like to think that that Peter in this moment, whenever he was rebuked by Paul, I like to think that Peter just probably said, dang, Paul, you're right. You're right. But notice it's important too to notice where Paul does this. Paul does this in front of them all. This was public sin and Paul addressed it publicly. Now, I don't say that to open up the door to somebody here in the morning that says, preacher, I don't believe with you and tries to argue with me because I'm going to turn all red, probably lock up a little bit and it's not going to be good. So I'm not, I'm not saying it's okay to do that. That's not what's happening here. But the sin, the sin that happened, it was public. Everybody saw it. Everybody saw it enough to where at this potluck dinner, you see phew, two groups of people go to two different sides of, this, of, 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 the, of the room. And that's huge for where they're at and what the church is. So Paul addresses it publicly. 
Jesus does give instruction in Matthew 18 for, for how to address sin privately. If someone sins against you privately, you go to that person privately and you follow these steps as Jesus lays out. But here, it was public sin and it was addressed publicly. And that is huge for Paul to step into that role seeking peace. It would be easy to say to all of them, hey, wouldn't it have been better if, if they just went about like that, just, just appeased these Jews? Because, I mean, they're not from Antioch. They're going to go back to Jerusalem eventually. So why can't we just kind of appease them as soon as they go? Then we'll just kind of get back to that. But imagine you're the Gentile that just got shunned by everybody. Then that party leaves and everybody comes back. Hey, guys, what's going on? Imagine how that conversation is going to go. It wouldn't be peaceable. But Paul sees this. This was not a small sacrifice to make for peace. Paul sees this. This, wasn't, this was peace at any price, and Paul was not prepared to buy peace on those terms. So being the peacemaker he was, he stepped into that role and admonished his leader. All too often, there are people in the church that know the truth and they don't speak the truth in an effort to maintain what they incorrectly understand to be peace. It happens all the time. I'll end with this, Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. I don't know if, I don't think I have it on the screen for you, but uh, Paul says this. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So if you would call yourself a son of God, if you've been called out of darkness into the wonderful light, you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the Savior and Lord of your life, and you would call yourself a son of God, he says, act like that. Walk in a manner worthy of what you've been called to. Then he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. He doesn't say eager to maintain peace. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. It's peace that binds us together. But all too often, churches split in our culture today, probably the world over, on account of people being passive, seeing the failure of their leader and not stepping up and speaking truth because they want to keep some peace. And eventually it festers, divisions are made, dissensions and factions happen, and then churches split. This community has seen it time and time again. You may have been hurt by that very thing, we must be seeking peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Sons of God are known as such because they make peace. We will be known in this community, in this county, as sons and daughters of God. People will recognize us as such if we are being peacemakers, if we are seeking to reconcile a broken world to a holy God that loves them. So blessed are the peacemakers. Let's be called sons of God for what we are, not just claim it. Lord, thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for, it's always the truth of your word, Lord, and just um, the encouragement, the exhortation, Lord, and the admonishment that's in there, Lord, and the challenge that's in there, Lord. Always challenging, always stretching us to, to grow, Lord. And I thank you, Jesus, for your words the Beatitudes, the blessings that are. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us by your spirit to live those out. 
Lord, help us to be bold, to be the peacemaker, not the troublemaker. But not only that, not to be the passive person that sits idly by and watches the trouble that surrounds them for fear of making waves. I pray, God, that we would make waves, but do it in truth and love by your leading with wisdom and discernment, Lord. But I pray, Lord, you help us all, help us as a church to be peacemakers, Lord. I love you and I thank you, Lord. It's your name we pray, amen.